Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About SACT. My name is Michael, I'm a Advanced Cancer Pharmacist and the Education and Training Secretary and the podcast host. And today I'm joined by Imran Lasker. Imran, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Imran Lasker or Doc Lasker on the various areas of the internet. Thank you so much for having me on, Michael. I'm quite excited to talk about potentially a field that I don't really have too much to do with these days because I do so much radiology, but it sounds like actually some of our roles might be overlapping on some level from our pre-podcast conversations. Uh, yeah, so as for me, I mainly do musculoskeletal radiology in truth, uh, which doesn't have much to do with oncology, but in reality, what I always tell people any and all trainees that all radiology is actually oncology radiology on some level because we have these cardinal rules in radiology is that, and one of them obviously not harming the patient, but don't miss cancer. I d- just don't miss cancer. So I could do, be doing a spine MRI scan. I could be doing a hip MRI scan or something. And if there's a cancer, a uterine cancer, a lung cancer or something like that, there's quite a big miss. Mm. And so even though I'm technically not an oncologist, I do oncology scans. Cancer is a massive part of radiology, regardless of what field you're in, because edge of film stuff is what makes or breaks, well, careers on some level. So, yeah, I hope to give some insight into what it's like from my side of things when it comes to this kind of stuff. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. I'm very excited to talk about all things radiology. So I guess the first question is... Can you tell us about what you do day to day as a radiologist? My job has changed over the years, but generally speaking, it's a combination of doing acute work, which is work that comes in in the day. So someone hitting the head, falling over on the ward, uh, x-ray they need to be done. People need to know what to do with a patient, what kind of scan to get. Just kind of the stuff that needs to be sorted ASAP. So there's that kind of work. And that can be split into CT, that can be split into ultrasound, it can be split into MRI scan, or just taking phone calls because you get so busy these days that you actually have a designated person just to take the referrals, as it were, and just talk to people and figure out what they want. And then you've kind of got your cold reporting stuff. And then that is actually split into urgent two-week wait and routine depending on what the clinician or whoever's asking for the scan in the first place thinks it is and it gets kind of put into these buckets and you kind of just work through it depending on when they need to be done by and so the cold reporting is a little bit less pressured in that you don't need to do it within the next 10-15 minutes but you've got to do it within the day or two days or something like that and then um from a radiology consultant point of view, there's a fair bit of, I mean, it depends on what role you take, but I do a fair bit of teaching myself. So there is some teaching that happens during the week or on a monthly basis. And then in general, like it can change from person to person because there'll be some consultants who, and radiologists who want to do more managerial things, who want to do more researchy things, and they'll kind of start siphoning off some of their spare time, or I say quotation marks, spare time, but their work time into those kind of areas. So that's where it can start to get a little bit varied depending on what the person is and who they are and what the personality is like. So yeah, it can be fairly generic in some ways, but very, very individual when it comes to that kind of extra time-ish stuff that people do. How has it developed over the last few years? Yeah, you know what? I thought when I was applying to radiology, one of the big things that people... So there's been a few changes over the years, obviously. So if we go back, I mean, we've gone from films where you physically put them up onto light bulbs and stuff and have a look all together. And then we moved to a pack system, which suddenly, you know, got rid of whole big libraries of packets of films, made it easy to transport files. And then out of that came another industry called teleradiology, because we started to scan so many and then there's, you know, there's no real storage issues in terms of space. We started getting to a situation, we started getting so many scans that there just weren't enough people to read them. And then you started to almost sort of dissipate the work amongst the workforce using 
teleradiology. So teleradiology initially is kind of just an idea of transporting a scan from one place to another remotely, right? So you could be sitting in Australia and then get a scan from the UK and then report it. But out of that became an industry in terms of private companies that have become teleradiology hubs. People start working for those teleradiology hubs and start doing the scans from remotely without having to be part of the hospital. And that has been a huge change and huge challenges in good ways and bad ways. So I mean, good ways, obviously, is that you actually start to use the workforce in a different way, because like I said, some of your day is spent doing kind of um, acute work, which is some emergency work and managerial stuff and teaching things. But actually, what starts to happen is that we just need people to report scans. I mean, that that's literally because we've got so many scans happening. You need these scans to be reported, the big backlogs that happen because of it. And so teleradiology companies have provided a way to be able to get people just to concentrate on scans and nothing else. And it's a very interesting industry because I think there's a lot of things you can pull from there into the NHS, which unfortunately doesn't quite happen. But they've made uh, big efficiencies in the way that you report so that you don't get disturbed. Every scan comes in one after the other. You can organize the scans in terms of what scans you want and things like that. And they've made it very easy to get through quite a lot of work quite quickly which is good. And I think there's a lot of things to learn from it. But the negative things are that you, for example, I could be, I work for Basildon, but I could be reporting a scan for Glasgow. And so there's going to be interpretation differences, uh, communication differences, differences in practice between the way we do things versus the way they do things. Expectations are different. So a good report for where I work may not be as good a report for them. A report from me, from my place, may be too wordy for the other people on the other side. And so that's where it starts to get a little bit challenging. And I think that's been a really big, big change that it used to be that radiologists worked in one place, got to know people really, really well and became the go-to person. But because of teleradiology, you may still have those people, but so much of the work is now being done by people that you don't necessarily know and may not necessarily know you all that well or know the disease patterns and that kind of thing. And then therefore it becomes challenging because the report may be completely correct. It's just the way it's written is not the way that the people are used to. And then it ends up becoming more work for the local department to try and figure out like, is there a problem here, is there not a problem? And I think that is going to probably continue for a while. And then as for the future, every time I'm on the internet, you probably know this, right? You've been a partaker of the internet on, on Twitter, especially. Someone will come in with like, AI is taking a job and it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> Until that day, I've got quite a lot of work to do, so I'll stick my head down and carry on. <laughs> do you think AI will have a impact in the radiology field? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, without doubt. I think in the beginning, it's going to be a very, very interesting tool, and I think it's going to be a very useful tool. And in fact, I'm working on kind of a chat GPT style thing where you put in the key findings and it will kind of write report. So if you just say lung mass and the right upper lobe and there's lymph nodes and this, and then say write a report, it will do pretty much most of it. Something like that is a bit closer to home and very a lot easier to get to but where you start to go into the realms of ai model being able to report the entire thing people will kind of underestimate in terms of how difficult a scan is and i'm not saying you'll never get there it might do but um you've got an entire team working on just the head part of the scan and you've got entire teams working on just the chest so you've got these things called like brainomics and then there's lung cad and then there's like some sort of polyp thing or something where they will kind of go through the scan looking for polyps in the bowel but then you do need someone to kind of put it all together and then all this stuff to be able to talk to one another. And then, like I said, the edge of film stuff, like what happens if you're doing a bowel and there's like a nodule in the lung or there's a, a lesion in the uh, in the spine or something like that. And that's when I think there'll be some big limitations on that front. And also, I think people still quite like people. 
and whether we believe it or not, we still do like each other. And so you can still turn up and get a blood test when it will highlight all the reds and the greens and then tell you what it is. But you still want someone to tell you, someone to sit there and say, look, this is what's going on. I think this is what's going on. I think this is what you need to do next. So as long as there's a human element to healthcare, I think AI will be a tool for a very, very long time until the day that we're just happy to be like, okay, tell me what it is, bullet point and move on. And uh, I just don't see that happening for a long time because, I mean, look at us with mobile phones and the AI that we use, that like we use it, but we don't we don't sit there and have a conversation and tell the things about our feelings and what we're worried about. Like AI is not taking that because it's just not there. And at the end of the day, you're talking to a robot, not a person. And I think that's going to be the ultimate sort of tipping point. When are we okay with not having people in healthcare anymore? And that's when I won't exist. And so many people won't exist either, in truth, yeah. Speaking of people, and this is before we move on to talking about scans, Mm. how do you think pharmacy professionals can work more closely with radiologists? So radiologists are not healthcare professionals that we see on the day-to-day. How Mm. do you think we can work more closely with you? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the radiologists don't work with many people anymore at all, right? I mean, most of the time we're sitting in a dark room somewhere. But I think we've spoken about this as well, like in terms of, I think people have got this idea that this is what a doctor is and this is what a doctor should always be. And it's not going to change. But I think we all have to get used to the idea that medicine is changing and people's expectations of medicine is changing as well. And so with certain aspects of the job, sort of quotation mark disappearing, there'll be things that are appearing. There'll be things more to do. And we see it all the time. There's just so many things to do that, you know, how much you would expect one person to do so i think that in general with any healthcare professional i think there will be sort of start to become more of an overlap with regards to the way we interact so we were saying earlier like i think there will be points where you don't have your doctor to ask for a scan you, you just don't have to be and we are living in a situation where you don't have to be a doctor to ask a scan you go to private sectors and there'd be patients to be able to walk in and get an mri scan and the truth is they get an mri scan because there's no radiation involved the only reason why someone needs to talk to anyone in a hospital for an mri scan is because it's an expensive resource which is why you have to be the gatekeeper within the nhs but if someone's paying for it there's no reason why someone can't actually get an mri scan there's no radiation or real risk like that involved apart from having metal in your body and all the rest of it so when you start to think about okay so if a patient could walk in and get whatever scan they want and without having a doctor involvement really i.e an mri scan what stops a physician associate a pharmacist coming in and asking for scans are not non-radiation and then let's say you guys and other people decide to get the um, the whole irma thing going on you get the qualification to actually understand what radiation does how detrimental it can be to some people then once you start getting down that realm then again you lose another barrier to entry to be able to get a scan in the first place so i think as the years go on things are going to change a lot in terms of who's asking for a scan, who can ask for a scan, and the expectations of who is asked for a scan in the first place. So I think um, as time goes on, oh, and sorry, to answer your question, how can we work closer? I think it's more of an understanding of what each other do. I think that's going to be the big step, isn't it? So there'll be limitations into, and this is the big problem that we have with doctors in general, like uh, junior doctors, consultants from other subspecialties, sometimes they ask for something that is just not possible or they're asking for like three things, but only one scan can answer. You see what I mean? And Or they're asking for something that's going to be six scans on one person. Because if you're saying, I think it's a PE, I think it's aortic sections, and then you're saying that you're also worried that this person could have some sort of bowel problem. So I mean, you're almost talking about three, three different scans on the same person. So you've got to start to really think, okay, clinically, what have I got here? And what do I think it is? And that's where the judgment starts to come in. And I think as soon as 
uh, everyone else starts to get wind of that and understand that there are challenges between each other and what scan you're trying to get, not just between non-doctors, it's between doctors and doctors as well. As soon as we start to get to that level, then I, th- yeah, I think that pharmacists will be able to work closer and closer with radiologists. In my current role as a advanced cancer pharmacist, I work in a sarcoma clinic. So mm. I already request, I've done some training to request MRI and CT scans within that cohort of patients. As a radiologist, what information would you want to see on a scan request? So a lot of this is communication, right? So we just need to sort of communicate what you are trying to get to and what you're trying to get. So what, what's the clinical question? What are you trying to do? So I guess with sarcomas, generally speaking, you're going to be looking for whether it's got worse or got better, right? That That's the big thing, really. And so from our point of view, the things that we'll be trying to figure out is, is it a, a staging scan? So is it initial staging scan? You've never seen this thing before and you want to see how bad it is, how far it's got and that kind of thing. So that does make a bit of a difference. Then if it's a progressive scan, then we also need to have like, we need to know that, okay, when it comes in, we also need to be asking for the previous imaging. So well, I mentioned tetraidology and one of the complications or difficulties that can happen is that it's not always clear that there is a previous scan at all. So if you're not sure you report it like a brand new scan and you're staging it, then they get the scan and they thought, like, OK, well, I knew that, but I don't know whether it's got better or worse. But I didn't know that you had a previous scan. So just saying that need to compare to previous scan is very, very important to know. And then when you're actually looking at the scan, you, we, it's very good, obviously, to know like what previous staging it was, what kind of cancer it is in the first place, what previous metastases there are, what lymph nodes involvement there are, because then at least that way, having read it, you almost kind of have an idea as to what you're looking for and what may not be there anymore. Because otherwise, what you're asking a radiologist to do on the first inspection anyway, is to have a look at the previous image, like take it all in and then look at the subsequent image. But actually, anyway, the way I do it, as I read what it is, hopefully they tell me where it's metastasized and all the rest of it too. Then I have a look and say, okay, yeah, there's a level one yet again. Oh, there's a new thing there. They didn't mention that. Then I'll go back to the old one and then I'll do a full look through. But at least I've come loaded in with the idea that Mm. there could be potentially something new or um, something that's gone. Uh, So that's very, very useful to know. And that's going to be the standard things as well. Like obviously we need to know the renal function and that kind of stuff because it's become a bit of a controversial topic. But there are situations, especially in someone who's already unwell, contrast can have a detrimental effect onto a person's renal function. So I, I know there's some news, new data coming out about that, but those are still going to be the, the general questions that people, a radiologist, are going to want to know, right? It's quite useful to know what medication the person is on, on some level, mainly because when I worked at Mount Vernon after a very like interesting guy, he's actually phenomenal, phenomenal radiologist, great teacher, and uh, actually I would count as a friend, Professor Badani. He's quite well known in the cancer world. What I found so fascinating about him is that he used to look at the medication, look at the way the medication works, on a kind of molecular level and try and figure out what does the imaging show and does that correlate with it and so that can actually be quite useful at least for a radiologist who's going to do more and more of it to know what medication they're on to know what kind of patterns that may exist because sometimes progression is not actually progression it's just the way the drug works before it regresses that kind of thing and that's what he was amazing at like he had an encyclopedia of knowledge on what tumors do and how it actually reacts to specific medications so that's actually very useful to know as well from our point of view from when we're reporting so yeah i've kind of complicated that bit haven't i so i think in in summary what cancer is it what stage is it where is it spread to what medication they're on is it a comparison study or a staging study and obviously the renal function and i think once you've got those things down you're pretty much good to go. And I think you've given the radiologist more than enough, more than enough that they need to be able to go forwards and be able to interpret the imaging for you, right? And and your team, because that's what 
my job is they jokingly say I'm a doctor's doctor. So if I don't write a good report and communicate it well, then I'm not a very good radiologist. And that and I need I need you guys to tell me and help me to be the best radiologist that I can be, right? That is very useful and very helpful for me and hopefully our <laughs> listeners as well. Most of our listeners work in cancer services with cancer patients. So I wanted to discuss some of the most commonly used radiological techniques used within mm. the speciality. I was just hoping that we would focus on sort of the three big ones. So which three big ones do you think we should be aware of? So, I mean, CT is going to be your going to be the one that um, everyone goes to. And then you're going to be looking at PET CT is going to be the next the next big one. And then something that's emerging, and I don't know how, that's the thing, obviously when you work in big centres, your your idea of what's common and not common gets skewed, right? So I worked at Mount Vernon, and so we did a lot of whole body MRI. But then I also understand that not everywhere offers whole body MRI. Obviously, PET-CT is useful, but it's very time consuming. Uh, I think a lot of PET-CT people won't be happy with me saying this, but it is time consuming and it's quite expensive. Whereas a, a whole body MRI is no radiation, not as time consuming and it's and it's cheaper and potentially may be able to answer a lot of the questions that one is looking for. Now, th- I think those are your three main imaging techniques that someone would be wanting to know of. And the reason being is that CT is a very good and quick way of getting a, an image of the entire body, like an entire body all the way through and look for big, big lesions in big places, stage the primary lesion and look for where it's going to. And then when you are going on to PET-CT, that's looking for the more discrete stuff, the stuff that's not so easy to see. Have you seen much PET-CT at all? Not really. Primarily the scans that I request are either CT or MRI. I say MRI is actually useful depending on what kind of cancer it is, right? So if it's a bone tumour, obviously an MRI is a good one. Prostates, MRI is a good one. Gynecology, you know, uterine cancers, that's going to, MRI again is going to be very good because what you do is get, you get very good sort of spatial uh, delineation when it gets to MRI scans. And uh, again, there's no no radiation and that kind of thing is very good for local staging of these kind of cancers. But when you go into sort of lung cancers and bowel cancers and things like that, then it can be, uh, MRI is not as useful because bowel moves, lungs move. It's very difficult to get a still image because MRIs take longer to take an image of right whereas ct acquisition is very very quick you can do it in one breath and you're done but yeah pet ct is quite interesting in that it's kind of when i tried to explain to some gcse students once and i don't know whether there's any good but i'll still use it so it's like you inject something into the body that's radioactive and then the tumor thinks of something that it wants and takes in lots of it like let's say it's sugar or something and we just take lots of it and so when you take the image it just shines very very bright and what you then do is take a, a normal CT image and then marry those images together. And then wherever it's very, very bright will hopefully coincide with wherever tumour may be. And that's very good because sometimes a tumour can vary very small and very hard to delineate with your naked eye. But then when it's taking up all that sort of radioactive material, it looks very, very bright. Now, interestingly, um, whole body MRI works on a slightly different idea that tumours are generally a lot more densely packed and they're kind of holding water in a, in a um, very kind of closed space. And there's a particular kind of imaging called diffusion weighted imaging. And I'm not going to go into technicalities mainly because I don't know the technicalities. But the way I describe it is if you've got a toddler, right? I mean, I've got kids, as you can tell. And so um, they're really, really hyperactive and you try and hold them really tight. They'll really fight and they really, and there's that pent up energy. And that's the same as these kind of tumors flying around the body. They've got a lot of pent up energy. And when you try and, and water's kind of flying around. And so when you're trying to hold water in one place, it's got that pent up energy. And that's what you see on an MRI scan. And so anything that's got pent up water 
is going to be very, very bright and tumours tend to have pent up water. And so therefore anywhere we've got pent up water is going to be highlighted. And so that's kind of a, a very interesting and emerging field. And I suspect as time goes on, we're probably going to end up starting to use that quite often actually over some other imaging as years go on. But I think, yeah, those are going to be your, your main things that you're going to be looking at. In what instance would you pick a CT over an MRI or an MRI over a CT? What would make you pick one or the other? So generally speaking, what we find is that when you get your initial diagnosis, whatever cancer it is, depending on what kind of cancer it is, MRI may be a, a good adjunct to try and further stage things. So, for example, with a prostate cancer, you, when you when you need to do an MRI scan of the prostate to try and actually look at the prostate, see where it's spread to, whether it's gone outside the prostate capsule. Rectal cancers will need MRI scan again to look a bit closer to see how much of the wall, the rectal walls are involved, how many lymph nodes are involved, which can be a bit more difficult to see, and gynecology as well. And I think a lot of it's to do with like how crammed the area is, because it's it's hard to get that sort of spatial delineation on a CT scan. But CT scan serves the purpose of getting a whole body look and try and look for big metastases, right? Liver, your, your standard things, adrenals, liver, lung, bones. Once you've done your main CT and your main MRI scan, it depends on what the radiologists and the clinicians want. Then you may be looking down the road of either doing a PET CT scan or, or a whole body MRI scan just to see if there's any more discrete metastases and stuff like that. And then generally following up, most of the time you'd end up doing full body CT scans especially if there's metastatic disease. So metastatic disease is where it's gone around to other parts of the body. So it's a very good way of just having a good look at that. But if it's a very local disease that hasn't gone anywhere, you may just want to do another local MRI scan to see how far things have got, where things got better. So again, it's very much based on your local, what your clinicians think really, or what you what you are looking for. But generally speaking, it would be CT scan in the beginning with an MRI scan to adjunct it, possibly a PET CT to adjunct that. And then follow-up would usually be a CT scan, if, especially if it's spread to other parts of the body. If it's not, then you may just stick to your MRI scan to look at that sort of focal area moving forwards. And what are some of the contraindications for each of the scans? Everything's about timing, really, right? So you don't want to be scanning someone too soon after they started their radiotherapy, chemotherapy and that kind of thing. You know, generally speaking, you'd be looking at three-month or six-month follow-ups. And so time can be a bit of a constraint, obviously, just because... If you scan in the middle of a cycle, that kind of ruins your follow-up because things can get slightly bigger before they get smaller. And there's, there's patterns to the way uh, certain diseases react to the medication that you give. And then, like I said already, it's going to be the renal function as well, depending on your point of view. But we do try and make sure that we don't expose people to too much contrast if we can help it. And then I guess the, the final thing would be sort of radiation as well. So if someone's very young, we try and limit the amount of radiation that they get. I mean, there's going to be that sort of benefit to risk ratio, right? You don't want to not scan them and then things get worse and you don't know what's going on. But also, you don't want to scan them too often so that eventually down the line, they may end up becoming having a higher risk of um, getting developing another cancer of some sort. Those are the things that are going to be your limiting factors. And again, it really depends on what kind of cancer, age of the patient, their overall health. You know, someone once told me that medicine is, we like to say it's a science, but actually it's a bit of an art as well. And a lot of that art comes from experience. And I think experience can be something that can be downplayed a bit by a lot of people. And we were just talking about earlier that there'll be a lot of people who will say that, oh, you know, you can't have someone who's a non-doctor come in and do certain things. But actually people are not taking into consideration the experience that someone can come, come in with from being a non-doctor quotation mark. And also the amount of experience that they can build up from just interacting, learning, listening, 
you know, taking whatever qualifications that you can to be able to be show that you're competent in the first place. That shouldn't be taken lightly at all. And so once you've kind of got that experience and the knowledge, you should be able to sort of navigate some of those limitations that I spoke about. I think everyone's jobs are going to change and develop to something that may have not be recognisable from what it started with. So pharmacy, mm. for example, used to be predominantly in a dispensary to now where on the wards where we have clinics and requesting scans for example so things mm. are changing i think if someone like yourself or anyone else take get some negativity about what you're doing in terms of being able to request scans and that kind of thing i think it's very important to try and see it from both sides and that i think a lot of people come into something like medicine and it's, it's become a lot of their identity, right? It's, it's such a big part of their identity. So like, I, I often think about this question that comes up when someone says, what do you do? And if you answer with, I'm a doctor, then that must mean that that's quite a big part of your, you know, your identity, right? And so when people get upset about this stuff, I think they're probably getting upset that they feel as though some part of their identity is being encroached on. And I do think that as, as you get more senior, as you start to watch how the, the the whole playing field as it were changes like your job my job's not the same as it was 10 years ago let alone what it was 20 years ago as soon as you get comfortable with the idea that um you shouldn't tie so much of your identity to this job in terms of what you think you're doing because you, you you will always have a role as long as people want people to be in their healthcare. you just have to be comfortable with the idea that you know there's not such a big part of your identity that if someone comes in and starts asking for scans that now you're no longer a doctor. You're still a doctor and you're still a pharmacist, but there's nothing wrong with either of those things. It's just that parts of the jobs have changed. Ultimately, this stuff is born out of need, right? Like doctors, as you know, and pharmacists are rushed off their feet. So you do need some sort of interaction or ability to be able to sort of help each other out and do each other's work on some level and let people do what their expertise is. That brings me to one of the last questions, which is, Mm. You know, with the development in pharmacy, we're, we're doing all these extra roles. What mm. is your advice to us if we see some resistance from clinicians, for example, who don't think pharmacy should be doing that role? I think it's a very personal thing, right? So for me, I always think to myself, like, you've got to make you've got to make your job work for you, right? Like, otherwise, you know, it, it starts to get a bit boring, doesn't it? Right. And I think that if you are someone that wants to see more people, more patients and have that kind of interaction, there's a possibility to do so. By all means, go go and do that. And I find that you'll find people that are supportive and there'll be people unsupportive. Your overall goal should be independent of what other people kind of make and think of what you, you're doing, right? And so I'm just going to offer some sort of personal experience in this field in terms of, I know when I was training, point in my life when I felt as though there were some people who didn't want me to finish being a radiologist or didn't think I was very good and I was talking to someone about it and I said to him look I'm, I feel like whenever I go to work there's always someone after me it's always someone upset and they're gonna they're just out to get me and then they said to me think about two scenarios one one scenario you're correct people are out to get you and they don't like you and they don't want you there right how does that affect the way that you work and I thought it doesn't because I still want to do a good job I want to do the best job I can I want to make this job work for me and then the other scenario is like, it's all in my head and no one actually cares and they're all doing their own thing. How does that affect the way that you work? And again, the same thing was true. I want to do the best job I can. I want to make the job work for me and you know, I like my job. So actually, regardless of what people think and feel, your job and your approach to work is exactly the same. It doesn't matter. So I think if you're someone out there that wants to add a few, was it bows to your arrow or a few feathers to your hat, 
and there's a possibility to do that, then I wouldn't worry too much about someone's feelings and some resistance from a clinician or that kind of thing. Just go in, do the best job you can, and your work will do the talking in the long run, right? Because eventually your negative clinician may see that, oh, you know what? They're pretty good and they're very they're very dedicated. Why was that causing such an issue? And if they continue to cause issues, then that's on them, not you. You're doing the best job you can. It doesn't matter anyway. So I know that gets a bit philosophical, but I think that's a healthier way to move forwards with all of this because you're never going to make everyone happy, are you? That is very good advice. Thank you so much for coming again. You're welcome. Uh, Always a pleasure. (laughs) And thank you everyone for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode of Let's Talk About Sack. (laughs) 